ask the Lord to bless our time in His Word this morning. Father, in the next few moments as we look into Your Word, we ask that You would uh, have Your way in us, that You would use it to uh, teach us, train us, or maybe correct us, rebuke us, but at the end of it, that You would equip us, make us complete workers in Your kingdom to do the good works that You've called us to do. And so we admit and confess that we need the teaching, we need the correction. Give us uh, clarity so we understand what your word was inspired to say and how it impacts our lives, uh, not just in the church, but outside of the church, in the daily uh, run of our lives, what it looks like. Give us that clarity we ask in Jesus' name, amen. I wasn't going to start with this, but uh, as I keep thinking about this text, I'm reminded of how often Jesus is pitted against the Pharisees. Uh, when you read the Gospels, there's a lot of arguments that you see in there. Um, I remember when we went through John years ago, halfway through it, I'm like, I'm kind of preaching the same sermon. It's here's Jesus versus the Pharisees again. You know, it was always Jesus against the Pharisees. And for those of you who've been Christian for a long time, as soon as you hear the word Pharisee, you, you know if you heard somebody being called a Pharisee, you know what's meant. If someone calls you a Pharisee, you're not like, oh, thanks. You're like, why? What did I do? You know, because it's, it's wrong. The Pharisees were so wrong. They were so bad. And so you see this conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees, and you, you don't have to think about which one is the bad guy and which one's the good guy, which one of those two parties is right or correct and which one's wrong. But I think we jump to that conclusion too easily, too quickly, without seeing the point that the Pharisees were actually making. It reminds me of this book by H.G. Wells. It's called The War of the Worlds. Ever hear of it? It's a little dated now. We're, we're so inundated with alien invasion movies that if you try to read the book now, you're like, oh, yawn. But back then, if I understand correctly, when it was being narrated live on the radio, people were pulling over and buying gasoline because they thought, for real, this is happening. In those opening pages, H.G. Wells pauses to make a comment for you, the reader, to understand what he's really talking about. This isn't really about an alien invasion. The aliens are coming. They're pummeling everybody. We, we can't match their weapons. We can't match their technology. They're destroying towns. They're destroying tanks. They're destroying armies. Bullets don't hurt them. And as they're completely pillaging England in that time, he makes a remark that they're like when we step on an anthill. I mean, we're, we're the humans going, Why, how can the aliens do this? The aliens feel so superior to earthlings that it's like when you kick over an anthill, you don't think twice about it. Maybe a little kid, you like to stomp on bugs. It's just a bug, right? Who cares? Well, that bug had a family, dude, right? He was, trying to, he was trying to haul that grain of rice back to his little hole and, and feed the little other little bugs, right? But we're like, they're just insects, they're bugs. If anything, they kind of creep me out. And that's how the aliens felt about earthlings. And then he makes this comment. Before we are too quick to judge the aliens, it's not that unlike when England would colonize places like Africa. And then he keeps talking. 
don't drop a bomb on that like me. I mean, that's like, a, that's like you would do it too, right? You'd be the alien. Because inside of us, we have this heart that's bent on disaster, destruction. We're all bullies at heart. And when we read the Gospels, we're too quick to go, the, the, the Pharisees, they're like these bad aliens, and Jesus comes to rescue. He finds the, the trick to kind of disarm all the aliens. And we're like, yes, Jesus rescued us from the bad aliens. You're the alien, is what the Gospel is trying to communicate. Now, I know I've got to do a little convincing. We've grown up knowing that the Pharisees are them, the bad guys. We're not Pharisees. Jesus saved us, protected us from becoming such a one. But there may linger some things there that we might see as familiar to us when we look at the Pharisees. To do that, we're going to be in Mark chapter 2. If you need a Bible, lift your hand. We'll bring one to you. For those of you who already have your Bibles out, Mark chapter 2, verse 18 to 22 is where we will be today. Mark is recording Jesus taking over. He is in the synagogues. He is by the seaside. He is at the fishing ports. He is at the tax collector booths. He's everywhere. And he's proclaiming his gospel. And people uh, are flocking to him. Some of them really, really liking what they see because they're into the healings. Some of them kind of are understanding what he's teaching, but not so much. But at least they're willing to follow him and figure it out. Those are the few. And then you've got some that are outright going, man, this guy is... This guy can't be the Messiah. He's doing everything wrong. I mean, we're waiting for the Messiah. We want the Messiah to come. We read about the Old Testament. The Old Testament promises that this Savior is going to come and rescue us, but it can't be him because he's doing everything backwards. What is up with this guy? And so when we read the conflicts, we, all, we often imagine the Pharisees like seething. They're drooling hatred. They, they're like in court. They're hunched over, all of them. They're all like hunched back, and they've got like scars on their faces. And this is the kind of villains that we imagine, but... They were just churchgoers. The Pharisees developed as a lay movement about 200 years before Jesus came on the scene. This is why when you read the Old Testament, you don't read about Pharisees. So when the Old Testament ends, another 200 years, and then Phariseeism starts to develop. And that develops and, and evolves for about 200 years, and then Jesus comes on the scene. And 200 years is a long time. 200 years, stuff can, can get traditional. Some of us were nervous about a missing Christmas tree because I was 40 years. 200 years of the same? Not just the same, but it developing and progressing. And then Jesus comes and meh, he ignores it. So that's the dilemma. Well, of course, there's going to be an example. And the example here is fasting. Verse 18, now John's disciples and Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, to Jesus, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? There's the question. Now, I don't know if some of them were drooling and hunched back and like, oh, let's try to get this guy. But it, he doesn't cue us in that they were trying to trap him. That does happen to Jesus. But here, maybe for some of them it was an honest question. I don't get it. We've been, since, ever since we were little, we were told legendary stories about how our grandpa would fast and our dad fast and... We're a fasting family, and this is what we're taught in the synagogues. And then they see Jesus, and while everyone's fasting, and they're like, oh, I've been fasting since yesterday. I've been fasting since last week. And Jesus' disciples are like, and how's it going? <laughs> All right, so they don't like it. 
not cool. John's disciples fast. The Pharisees are fasting. Why don't your disciples fast? Interesting that they don't ask them, how come you're not fasting? Maybe there's just a little, Jesus is a little too intense to point the finger at him, but just like, how come you're a disciple? I know you don't have to because you're so awesome, but what's up with those guys? And so the question is posed to him. Now, before we unpack it a little bit, just to give a little bit more background on what's happening here, what the Pharisees did. What are Pharisees? Okay, it developed 200 years. Developed as what? Okay, it was lay people. It wasn't priests, but what was it mainly? Well, the Pharisees would, were considered experts in the Torah, the law, right? Specifically, the first five books of the Old Testament, but of course, those five books control and speak into the prophets and wisdom literature, which is drawing back on the Torah, the main thing, and, and just telling you how to live it, or the prophets would rebuke you for not doing it. So the Torah is the main thing. They were the experts on the Torah. So if you wanted to know how to live the Torah, you would, presumably, you would go to the Pharisees or a disciple of a Pharisee. The Pharisees themselves made up 1% of the population at the time. And I started thinking, I'm like, that's not that many. At the time, you crunched the numbers like 6,000 people. There's 6,000 Pharisees walking around. That's a lot, but I mean, it's kind of spread out. But what's easy to underestimate is their influence, right? So maybe this is a poor example. I don't know. I'm going to just try it. If not, we'll edit it out of the sermon. That's what technology is for, right? But think about how many people actually work for the media, are actually involved in media communication and journalism. Not that many. I don't know if it's 1% of the population, but it's not that many people actually working for a newspaper, actually driving downtown and, and you know, working at, at some news station. But consider their influence. Consider their influence. How the grand population can really be thinking one thing, but you wouldn't think the grand population thought that because of the media's agenda to make you think that the prevailing opinion is something else. I'm not going to get specific examples, but you know what I'm talking about. So media is powerful. So that's what the Pharisees were like. They were 1% of the population, but their influence was much bigger than 1%. You followed the Pharisees. If you wanted to know how to live a holy life pleasing to God, if you wanted to know how the Torah applied to your life, the Pharisees would cue you in. Now, with fasting, there's only one command in the Old Testament to fast. I was one day a year on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. One day a year. But by this point, the Pharisees were fasting twice a week. It's not mandated, but if you're not rolling with it, what's your problem? You're putting food before God? Too hungry for God? So you would fast. This is the thing. This is what you do. Some of you grew up in church traditions where if you didn't go to that particular service or you did something in a particularly different way, they can't find chapter and verse. They're just, that's how we've done it. What are you doing? Everyone's thrown for a loop. What are you doing? Why are you doing it different? Right? So we can sense what's happening here. 200 years developing into this rhythm of what do you do on Monday? You fast. What does everybody do on Thursday? Now think of the logic of it. Old Testament teaches that fasting is appropriate. What is fasting? Giving up food because your hunger for God or your hunger for something from God is more important to you than eating. It's kind of natural, right? Something rocks your life. You get devastating news. Do you go to Wendy's right afterwards? You don't feel like eating, right? There's a natural impulse to just kind of, you don't even want to eat right now. This is just so disgusting or so tragic or so weighing so heavily on me. 
Eating right now just doesn't seem appropriate, and I don't even, my stomach can't even handle food right now. I'm so sick with this issue. So fasting is kind of natural in that way. The Old Testament teaches that fasting is, a, is an appropriate thing to do. God isn't against fasting. So next point, Old Testament says fasting is appropriate to do. If something is appropriate to do for God, then it's good to do it. It's good to do appropriate things. It's not good to do inappropriate things. It's good to do appropriate things. Doing appropriate things more often is better than doing appropriate things less often. More often is better than less often. So how about once a month? How about twice a month? How about four times a month? How about twice a week? I don't know if it would have progressed past that where they're only eating once a week or something, but at this point in time, Mondays and Thursdays were your fasting days. Now, it'd be tough if these people fasted on Mondays, but then that group fasted on Tuesdays, and like the shops don't know when to put out sandwiches, right? But if all the community all fasted on Mondays and we all did it together on Thursday, we'd help each other out. We're not eating in front of each other like Jesus' disciples, Right? We're not asking storekeepers like, hey, do you have sausage today? No, I thought we were fasting today. No, those people fast today. We fast tomorrow. You know, let's just all do it together. And so you see the logic. It's, this isn't sniveling villains going, oh, let's fast on Tuesdays and well, on Mondays and Thursdays and just make everybody do it. They're just going, how do we honor God? Does fasting honor God? Yeah, fasting honors God. Well, let's do more of it and let's do it together. And if we don't put it in the schedule, we're probably going to forget We didn't need Stephen Covey to come out with seven habits of an effective person to tell us that you need to plug stuff in your calendar, right? So let's do it on these two days of the week, same days every week, so we can do it together, encourage one another, and, you know, just to to kind of have a built-in Lent, so to speak, twice a week to to just take stuff, even food, as much as we enjoy it, to just put it aside and just spend extra time in prayer and spend extra time pursuing the Lord and spend extra time in the synagogue and learn the Scripture, learn the Torah a little bit better. What's wrong with that? That sounds like a good plan. We have plans. And so the Pharisees are very much like people who are trying to live what the Torah is demanding of them. And they want to honor God. Pharisees are still the bad guys, but we don't know why yet. I just, want to, I just want to get you to the place where you can see how very easily, at least for me, if I lived back then, I'd probably be one of them. And hopefully Jesus' teaching would snap me awake from it, but that's probably the mode I'd be in. These are things God likes. God likes this. God likes prayer. Why would he want less prayer versus more prayer? So then let's pray more. Pray how long? We do this. We call it quiet times. You should be doing your quiet times. Well, how often should you be doing quiet times? Well, I've heard it taught that you should do quiet times once a day. And I've heard it explained that if you don't start your day with quiet times, you're basically putting breakfast before God, or you're putting your workout before God, or you're putting school before God, or you're putting getting to work on time before God. So you should do your quiet times first, and you should do it in a closet. I have someone in my family who goes literally in his closet and closes the door. Wife be like, where's, where's my husband? She's got to check the wardrobe because he's in there. Is something wrong with that? Is there something wrong with praying once a day, cutting time out, doing quiet times? There's nothing wrong with it. But the Bible doesn't say quiet times. The word quiet times isn't in the Bible. It doesn't say you have to do it in the morning every day. It doesn't say that it has to be daily. 
Does that make it wrong? At least the word fasting is in the Old Testament. But what the Pharisees would do is they'd come up with these extra laws. We've heard of this. And we experience this in churches. Right? Here's what the Bible says, but I just want to make sure I really honor what the Bible says to make sure I'm going to create buffers so that even if I break a couple of these, at least I didn't break that one. I want to protect myself from breaking God's law. So we'll be extra protective and we're going to build laws that keep you from laws that keep you from laws, breaking them. Right? So the Pharisees were experts in the Torah, but they would come up with rules. For instance, keeping the Sabbath. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Well, what constitutes work? They measured out how many paces one could walk. Take one more step and that's work. Well, I'm at my pace limit. They didn't even have Fitbits back then. They're literally one, two, three, logging it in their little scroll. One more pace and that's work. One less pace and you're still in the zone. You're good. You're good. You're not working. You can pick something up with one hand and put it down with the other hand, but if you transfer it to the left, now that's work. Stuff like that. And we're reading and we're like, that's so ridiculous, but think about it. They're reading this Old Testament about a holy God saying, I am holy, you are separate, you can't touch the mountain. If you touch the mountain, you're going to die. And the only way that we can keep a relationship is if you keep my law. But God didn't spell everything out. Can I cut a fruit? Or do I have to just eat it like that? No oranges, because you got to peel the skin, peel the skin. If you have to peel it for more than two minutes, that's work. I mean, I'm making this up, but it's, it's, it's what you're reading when you read the rabbinical literature from back then. All these little laws. And fasting became one of them. You fast on Mondays and Thursdays. Why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you do that? It keeps you fasting. It keeps you praying. It's something you're supposed to do, so do it. And then before we're, again, too quick to see the Pharisees as bad guys, look who else is doing it. John's disciples. Do we consider them the sniveling villains with the black capes hanging around in dark corners of the synagogue? They're John's disciples. They're fasting. Jesus' disciples aren't, but John's disciples are. You remember John the Baptist, he's in the wilderness, a little bit of a weirdo wearing camel fur and eating locusts and honey, but, you know, he's hardcore. But Matthew records Jesus saying of John, no man born of woman ever has arisen greater than John the Baptist. He's great and no one else is greater. I thought Moses was the greatest, John the Baptist. Just one up to him, according to Jesus. And John had his own disciples. Some of Jesus' disciples were previously John's disciples, and now they're following Jesus. But John had his own disciples. This wasn't a, a, a party that's running contrary to Jesus. John is the one that's like, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals or to tie his sandals. I can't, I, I can't, I'm not this guy. He's the one. His disciples are fasting. So the question is posed to Jesus, what in the world? Do you have a problem with fasting? Do you have a problem with prayer? Are you guys too good for it? Are your disciples too good for fasting? Are they just so addicted to food, to bread and fish, that they can't, they can't hang? Or did you just pick guys that are that weak? What is the answer? Jesus' answer, I think, will surprise us. What's not surprising is that he doesn't give it just in a blunt fashion. He uses analogies. The first one's of a wedding, verse 19. 
Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. But back then, their weddings were much more involved than weddings that probably you and I are accustomed to. But maybe you've been to a wedding from someone from another country or whatever, their, their parents are from another country in this world, another nation, and wedding is not kind of the drive-through. They would probably consider our weddings a drive-through. Like, let's go, come down, little short vowels, and boom, and then go eat, and then leave, right? Nobody wants to stay longer than that. This was seven days. Day one, you come, and you're dressed up, and you're nice, right? And there's food, and it's a feast, and there's wine, and it's abundant. There's tables of it, and there's dancing, and there's singing, and the party is inside the house, and it spills out into the streets, and everyone in the street were up and down. Fasting wasn't even allowed in those days. Those were the exceptions. He's saying, none of you would show up to one of those and go, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. I'm fasting. You showed up to a seven-day feast. You don't show up to a seven-day feast to fast. You show up to a seven-day feast to feast. Even on my best days when I'm really sticking to my nutrition plan, in the days where I actually have a nutrition plan, and I get invited to somebody's house and they put dinner in front of me, I'm not like, no, too carby. You eat the food, man, right? You eat the food and go jog around the block a couple times. Don't be a punk. That's what Jesus is pointing at. Why would you fast on an occasion when you're supposed to feast? Well, what's the occasion? The occasion is that I'm here. Jesus, the one you've been longing for throughout all the Old Testament, the one that all the Old Testament has talked about, I'm here. So why would you mourn like he's not, like he's not here? Why would my disciples mourn? And fast, fasting is a symbol of longing for God. Jesus is like, I'm right here. I know, I know, but I'm longing for God. No. The one you're longing for is here. So hint, for those of us who are interested in fasting and the purpose of it, if you're able to fast physically, I know some of us say, oh, I'm fasting from secular CDs. Just give up the music for a week and just call it that, right? But fasting is giving up food. You don't need to eat, you know, music. This is nutrition for life. If you don't eat, you die. But even though if you don't eat, you die, there's something else that you need that's more. The focus of that could be, I just want to be spiritually better. I want to detox, spiritually and physically, two for one. That's not fasting. Jesus is saying, fasting is longing for me. And the only time it's irrelevant is when I'm not here. Or the only time fasting is relevant is when I'm not here. When I am here, it's irrelevant because it's pointless. Longing for something that's in front of you, and you're missing it. So he said, the days will come, verse 20, when the bridegroom is taken away from them. Uh, most scholars believe that he's referring to the cross when he will be snatched from his disciples and killed. In the Old Testament, uh, that same phrase is used in Isaiah of, of the Messiah, the suffering servant being killed. Well, then fast then. 
like Mike prayed earlier, there, we, we, there was this anticipation and longing for Christ's birth, but because of the cross and the anticipation of his second coming, we're kind of in that place again where we're longing for the return of the king, not to suffer this time, but this time to rule and conquer. He's saying, fast then, but I'm, I'm right here in front of you. I'm healing, I'm teaching, I'm giving you the gospel. That's why my disciples don't fast. Notice he doesn't say, all your stupid traditions about fasting, Mondays and Thursdays, that's so dumb. No, he's just saying, that. it's almost like he's saying, that's great. Do it then. Not while I'm here. And what's irrelevant about the Pharisees' religion is not that it's religious. It's that they're missing the focus. He explains it with another couple analogies. Verse 21. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears from it, tears away from it. The new from the old, and a worse tear is made. You buy a shirt, it's not pre-shrunk. You throw it in the laundry, it's a different size, right? That's not a new problem. That's been. So even then in the marketplace, you would have unshrunk cloths. But you could buy uh, pre-shrunk cloths or unshrunk cloths. Jesus is saying, imagine you had a shirt, let's say, or some kind of garment, and you want to patch it. You can't patch that garment, or that piece of unshrunk cloth. You can't take an unshrunk cloth and patch it onto that garment. Because right? one's going to shrink, and the rest of it's not. And that garment patch, it's not going to match the whole, and it'll tear. Now you don't have a patch, and now you don't have a garment. Second illustration is the same. Verse 22, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wineskins. So you would take new wine. It's not been fermented yet. When wine ferments, it expands. You'd put it in a new wineskin where the leather is stretchy and breathable. As the wine ferments and expands, that new leather would stretch with it. But if you take new wine that still needs to expand and put it into an old wineskin that's already expanded as far as it's going to expand, and it's a little dry and brittle because it's old, when that new wine expands, the old, dry, brittle wineskin is going to burst, and you lose the wine, and you lose the wineskin. So what do you do? What everybody else did back then. You take new wine and put it in new wineskins. So an old garment can't handle that patch unless they're both the same. An unshrunk piece and a shrunk piece, they're not the same. They're going to ruin each other. An old wineskin and a new wineskin, they're not the same. One is going to ruin the other. And what Jesus is saying is, what you're trying to do, the reason why I'm not fitting into your agenda, the reason why you're starting to whisper in corners about questions to ask me, is because I don't fit your idea of religion. Now here's what we normally do with a passage like this. Normally we'll say, or maybe not normally, but many Christians will think, what Jesus is doing is he is upending religion. He's saying, your problem is you have religion and I have relationship. Right? Some kind of phrase like that. You're supposed to be in relationship with me and all you guys are concerned about is rules and laws and regulations about being holy and blah, blah, blah. It's not about being holy. It's about being a follower of Jesus. And I think when we think about it that way, we completely misunderstand what Jesus is getting at. And we misunderstand it in our sort of in-house church battles today. Where some Christians, they want to be in a church 
where it's high church. The clergy are wearing garments and robes and there's incense and smoke blowing and uh, texts from scriptures being written, read out loud in a language that nobody understands. It's an ancient language. But what they're communicating is that this is, God is high and he's holy and he demands things and we don't just waltz into his presence like he's our buddy. You come before him like he's that God thundering on the mountain with respect and you worship in appropriate ways. And then there's a stream of Christianity that says Jesus wanted to trash all that, man. He wanted to take all that and say, chuck that stuff. That's what's killing you. That's what's choking out your spirituality. So what do we need? We need a Jesus with torn blue jeans who meets in warehouses where we sit on bean bags around tables with our Starbucks coffee. The music's got to be sounding like stuff on the radio. In fact, some churches are doing music that you hear on the secular radio just to kind of warm people up and make people see, see, we're cool. We can bring it way down here to just make it accessible. That's what Jesus meant to do. There is this inaccessible God, and Jesus just wants to hug you and, 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 and put his arm around you and give you a noogie. You know what I'm saying? He just, wants to, he just wants to drink beer with you and watch rated R movies. He's just a cool guy, you know? I think both of those streams are missing the point. The point is not how religious you can be, and the point is not to dump anything that sounds like religion because Jesus is not trying to dump religion, guys. He's trying to save it. There's nothing wrong with religion. There's nothing wrong with praying and fasting. There's nothing wrong with making a schedule out of it. I'm going to do my quiet time at this time. That's smart. That's not pharisaical. So even things that aren't written in the Old Testament, there's nothing written in the Old Testament to have... uh, an Advent celebration. There's nothing written in the Old Testament or in the New Testament to have services on Christmas Eve where everyone's holding candles. Well, why do we do it then? Well, we see benefit from it. That's why we do it. So how do we know the difference between what Jesus is really trying to kill in this passage and just religion in general? What Jesus is trying to kill is a religion that misses the bridegroom. You can do your quiet times and miss Jesus. You can have a church service and miss Jesus. It doesn't matter if it's an evening service, a Wednesday service, a Sunday service. You can have a candlelight, December 24th, Christmas Eve service, and miss Jesus. This is actually an interesting debate among preachers, where some preachers want all sermons to point to Christ, and other preachers are going, nah, if the passage doesn't actually say Christ, Don't worry about it. Just preach the actual passage. You're actually sticking Christ in there where it doesn't belong. Now, if you've been here for some time, you'll realize I'm of the group that wants to get you to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, there's passages from the New Testament with Jesus in the passage, and the preacher still misses Jesus. Is he a historical figure? Is he just a guy that's modeling good morals for us? What is he really trying to communicate? What he's communicating here is you guys have your religion and you have your rules about fasting and you have your rules about prayer. You have your schedules and you've plugged it into your calendars. And that's there's nothing wrong with that. What's wrong with that is you're missing me and I'm the point of all of it. I was reading one book where he said, you know, we've got to move away from this trend where in every sermon Jesus is the answer to everything. I said, really? 
What else is the answer? The preacher that stands up there, guys, and gives you a sermon from a text in the Bible and sends you home with no Jesus, all he did was send you home with go do stuff. On what power? How do I do that? How am I able to do that? How am I clear to do that? How is doing that impact my relationship with God outside of the cross? Jesus is the answer. And I know we make fun of this sometimes, because the Sunday school answer, when in doubt, answer Jesus. The Sunday school teacher asks you a question, when in doubt, just say Jesus, and you're probably going to be right. <laughs> well, I love that Sunday school teacher, because Jesus is the answer. He is. And so the answer is not when you fast, how often you fast. It's, it's religious, it's religiosity if you fast scheduled. We should just be unscheduled. That's what Jesus' point was. Jesus' point wasn't schedules. Jesus' point was you can do it planned, you can do it unplanned, but if you do it, it needs to be, the focus needs to be me. I'm the bridegroom. Now, interestingly enough, there are no Old Testament passages that connect the Messiah with the bridegroom. There are no Old Testament passages that call the coming Messiah the bridegroom. But there are several, repeatedly, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Hosea, the whole thing paints Yahweh as the bridegroom. Yahweh's the bridegroom. Israel's the bride that's always cheating on him. But God is the faithful bridegroom. He's the groom. He's the faithful husband that rescues her from her adultery. He's the loyal husband that keeps the covenant marriage intact. He's the groom. So what is Jesus saying? You guys are fasting because you're after Yahweh, but Yahweh's right in front of you right here. I'm God. Is that new? Nope. That's what he communicated when he healed the paralytic. They said only God could forgive sins. He's like, you're right. You're forgiven. <laughs> well, prove it. Get up and walk. Dude gets up and walks, right? This is what Jesus is after. On the one hand, he's telling people, shh, don't tell them I healed you. But with his actions, he's being loud about it, right? That treasure box with the truth hidden inside that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one. He's the God-man that's come to solve all of the universe's problems. That box is burgeoning and busting at the seams. Every time he heals, every time he's confronted, he points it back to his deity, his authority, his authority to forgive sins, his authority to heal diseases, his authority to cast out demons, and his authority to be the center of people's prayers and fasting. Now, when he does that, he does that through these analogies. He does that in a way where it's like it might take them a minute to get it, and that's fascinating. But they're enduring analogies. And the reason why the analogies are helpful is because they say more than he would have if he just spelled it out. But I love how he ends it when he uses the analogy of the wineskins. And he says, you've got these old wineskins, and you're pouring new wine into it. And see, we think what Jesus is saying is, dump the old wineskins and all you need is new stuff. He's just saying they're not compatible. He's not saying take the Old Testament and chuck it in the garbage. I'm giving you a New Testament now. No. He's just, he's just saying your version of the Old Testament that doesn't have room for me doesn't fit with what I'm bringing you. It's not compatible. The Old Testament is compatible with Jesus. Their version of the Old Testament, what they were doing with it was incompatible. Incompatible. Our Christianity today can be incompatible with Jesus when he's not the center. 
When our center is evangelism, when our center is missions, when our center is worship experience, when our center is wanting to be a part of the community, none of those things are bad things. But if Jesus isn't the center, then we're just, we're just kind of like a nonprofit organization that's just throwing money at doing things in the world, but Jesus isn't the center. So what Jesus is talking about is the incompatibility of any religion, any version of the Bible lived out in life where Jesus is in the center is not compatible with what Jesus is bringing. And then what is the result? The result that he says, verse 22, is that the wine will burst the skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins. If you have religion and no Jesus or you try to get Jesus with no religion, you destroy both. Jesus is very interested in the Old Testament. He says in Matthew, doesn't he? Matthew 5.17, I didn't come to abolish the law. What did he come to do with it? Fulfill it. He came to fulfill the law, not throw it away. It is relevant, and we're going to unpack that next week. What does that mean it's relevant? How are the Old Testament laws relevant to me today? All highly relevant, highly relevant. If it's been a long time since you spent time in the Old Testament, because it's just kind of old, Old Testament relevant, just give me Jesus. Yeah, give you Jesus. Get him from the Old Testament. He's there all over the place. And he wants you to spend time there. Every sermon that he taught, he's quoting the Old Testament. And when we say, I don't know, every lesson shouldn't have Jesus as the answer. That was Jesus' answer to everything. How come your disciples don't fast? Because they got me. And why, the reason why you guys are fasting is you're missing me. Jesus is his answer to everything. So I'll close with saying this. We don't want to push against religion. We want to push against religiosity. And the difference between Christian religion and defunct religiosity is that the religiosity people see themselves as the center of their religion and not Jesus Christ. The religion that Jesus is talking about is a religion that goes, yes, I want to be holy. Yes, I want to pray. Yes, I want to even fast if if it's appropriate in my life. But the focus of it is Christ. The religiosity is doing your quiet times and going, oh, I was supposed to read this text today because it's in my plan, the Old Testament, this person, this, this and this happened, up, oh, and the chapter bookmark. All right, now I got to go to work. That's religiosity. What does Jesus want? Find him in there. How, does, how, is Jesus, how is this exposing how I'm in trouble? And how is this pointing me to the fact that Jesus rescues me from that trouble? I can't rescue myself. So what's the point? The point, Jesus is the point. That he's the object of your faith all the time. Every passage, every quiet time, every devotional, every Christian book. Yeah, you pluck a Christian book and you're reading it and it doesn't get you to Jesus, throw it in the trash. It's just getting you to be religious without Christ. That's what he wanted to stamp out. But Jesus didn't want to bring us over here where, don't do quiet times. Fasting is dumb. You know, don't do that. It's just about buddy-buddy, you know. He wants us to pursue holiness. And where did we get the phrase that you should be holy because your Father is holy? Jesus himself. So pursue holiness with Christ as your focus. Pursue holiness with yourself as your focus. And you've lost both Jesus and religion. Keep him as the focus. And you've got the religion that Jesus came to bring. I want to ask the worship team to come up. And as we close in this song, I'm hopeful 
that we'd be reminded of these things that we believe, the core of our faith, but at the center of all of what we believe is Jesus Christ himself. So please stand and let's sing this song together as we close.